Uh, we'll do uh, open up your Bibles again to uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, or you can uh, just look at the verse on the, uh, on the banner up there, if you like, which is, uh, which is great. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, our key text, if you like, for the coming year. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you. We praise you for giving us your word. We thank you that it reveals your truth, your heart, your voice to us. Give us ears that we may hear and hearts that we may receive and act in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Identity is one of the buzzwords of our culture. We're constantly being told, aren't we, that you can self-identify. You are who you feel you are. Do you remember uh, the news story last year of the 69-year-old Dutch man who went to court because he wanted to self-identify as a 49-year-old? His doctors had told him he had the body of a man in his 40s. He wanted to be able to go back to work, uh, and he wanted to have greater success at online dating. Uh, I came across an equally alarming story this week of a young woman who self-identifies as a wolf. She claims that spiritually she feels like a wolf, so that is what she is. Identity is a hot topic We're constantly told we can be who we want to be. You are who you feel you are. Well, in our our verse this morning, the Apostle Peter is dealing with a question of identity. He's writing to Christian believers scattered across the world, and he wants them to know who they are. He wants us to know who we are. And notice he doesn't say anything about being who we feel we are. And I... I think that's probably a good thing. You know, the first century Christians to whom Peter was writing, well, they had been marginalized within the Roman Empire. They were suffering for their faith. They were under constant pressure. And I rather think that if Peter had said to them, you are who you feel you are, they would have replied, well then, the church is feeble. The church is frail. The church is battered and bruised. The church is on its last legs, just hoping to survive as long as we possibly can before we're wiped out. And perhaps some people would say similar things about the church today. All of which means that I think it's a very good thing that Peter gives no hint of you are who you feel you are. What does he say instead? You are. You are. And I think people today would kind of say, who does he think he is telling me who I am? Well, Peter is an apostle of the Lord Jesus, a disciple of Jesus Christ, appointed by him, and now inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this letter. And through Peter, God speaks to his church. And through Peter, God says to his church, no matter how you may feel, no matter what the circumstances surrounding you might be, this is the objective reality of who you are 
in Jesus Christ. Peter is writing about the church, the new community that God has created in Christ. And in this verse, he uses very Old Testament kind of language, and his point in doing so is to show that the church, this new community that God is creating in Christ, is the fulfillment of all of God's promises to and about Israel. Where Israel had had failed to be the people of God, the people that God intended them to be, Jesus succeeded. And now those who belong to Jesus are the living embodiment of all that he has achieved. The living embodiment of all that Jesus is. The church now embodies here on earth. This is objective reality. This is nothing about how you may feel. It's nothing about circumstances that surround us. This is objective reality. This is our identity as God's new covenant community. Five things uh, about the church's identity that we need to grasp. One of the questions I was asked, incidentally, when I I came to preach with the view is, how many points do you normally have? Um, I think they were hoping for the answer, three. Uh, I said, well, however many points the text allows. So this morning it's five. God says to the church, number one, you are a privileged people. Look at the first phrase Peter uses. You are a chosen people, he says. Peter is, is contrasting the church with people who stumble and fall on account of Jesus because they reject him. But he says to the church, you, you're a privileged people. Why do I say this opening phrase means privilege? Well, for two reasons. First, because we're chosen. Chosen by God. What a privilege chosen by God. You know, when I was at school, I was rarely chosen for anything. Uh, and I certainly didn't get picked first for any sports. You know, when they stand everybody in a line and the team captains make their picks, well, I was short and dumpy and not much good at anything. I was always one of the last left standing until a couple of years into secondary school. And they began to realize that I was capable scrum half in rugby and I could poach a few goals in hockey, and I was a half-decent opening batsman in cricket. And then all of a sudden, I began to get picked a bit earlier. Then when we got to the upper school, and and I really focused on cricket, uh, I've spoken about cricket many times already in in the times I've been here, but when the team sheet for the second 11 was posted on the notice board, there I was, top of the list. Sense of delight at being chosen and sense of achievement and having earned my place in the team. But it's, it's not like that with the church. When Peter tells us that we are a chosen people, there is no room whatsoever for a sense of smugness or, or any sense of having earned that selection. We're chosen by God as an act of his totally sovereign grace. It is not deserved. If you are a Christian here this morning, it is because God has graciously reached down into the pit of this world and rescued you because he chose to do so. If you belong to Jesus, if you are part of this new covenant community that God is creating, it is not because you deserve to be so. None of us do. We're the undeserving recipients of God's 
grace. God has, has set his love upon us and chosen us to be his. Not, not because he saw some kind of good in us. Not because he kind of looked ahead and saw, well, you might be useful. He chose us despite our many failings. You know, you go to Tesco's and in the fruit and veg aisle, you kind of, you, you pick out the best, don't you? The best apples and carrots and, and bananas and, and whatever else you want. You, do, you, do you rummage through to find the best ones? The nicest looking ones? God doesn't look at this world and rummage around to find the best looking people from a bad bunch. He chose us despite our many failings. We are chosen. What a privilege to be chosen by God, to be his people. We're not only privileged, though, because we're chosen. We're privileged because we are a people. Peter is writing to Christians. But he's not writing to them as individual Christians. He's writing to them together as a, as a community of believers. You know, Old Testament Israel was a, was a people group, a community. And, and Peter is saying that this new community that God is building in Christ is the fulfillment of all that Israel had fail, failed to be. You are a chosen people. The church is a chosen people, a community. You know, I really struggle to see how anyone who says they can be a Christian in isolation can possibly reconcile that position with this verse. Christianity is to be experienced and lived out in community with one another. And being part of the church, both part of the, the global church, but also part of a, of a local church, is a great privilege. I, I wonder how many of you came in this morning and looked around and thought, what a privilege to be with these people. And the church is a people, a family, a, a tribe. And because it is made up of individuals who all are chosen by God to be his... We have a strong bond that is stronger than any natural human bond. We are bound together supernaturally as chosen people. And that should impact the way we live life together as a church. We live in a very individualistic society, but the church is to be radically different. The New Testament is full of one another's, isn't it? Love one another. Prefer one another. Be at peace with one another. Serve one another. Teach one another. Encourage one another. Don't grumble against one another. The list goes on and on. And all of those one another's come to us with, with some force as we realize that each of our brothers and sisters who make up the church are chosen by God to be his. Look around the room and see brothers and sisters who are every bit as chosen as you and I are. We have a strong and supernatural bond with one another, each of us chosen by God. And, and so as Paul writes to the Ephesians, it, it was verse that was included in the reading that we, we had yesterday afternoon. We are to work hard to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. We are a privileged people, privileged to be chosen, privileged to be the people of God together. Second, God says, you 
are a priestly people. You are a royal priesthood, writes Peter. And again, he's drawing an Old Testament language as he talks about the priesthood. But what does he mean by royal priesthood? There are kind of two possibilities, really. He could be saying that this new priesthood that God is creating is in itself royalty. Uh, and it would be kind of interesting if he was really, because under Old Testament law, the royal family was from the tribe of Judah. The priestly uh, family, the priests were from the tribe of Levi. You could not be both a king and a priest. Uh, and yet the Bible, of course, tells us that the Lord Jesus himself is a king and a, and a priest. And so Peter could be saying that Christians, because we belong to Jesus, are both royalty and priests. Like Jesus has achieved something the law could not do, and, and of course that is perfectly possible that that's what Peter could be saying, or he could be saying that this is a priesthood of royalty. That is, we are priests of the King of Kings. It's not possible, I don't think, to determine which it is. But the focus of what Peter wants to say, I think, is, is not on the royal bit, but the priestly bit. What is this priesthood Peter is talking about? Well, think about the priests of the Old Testament. They served in the temple. They led the people in worship as they made daily sacrifices. They taught the people from the Word of God. Uh, And essentially, the priesthood had two functions. They, They represented the people before God, and they represented God to the people. The people of Israel could not come directly to God themselves. There had to be a priest to offer sacrifices on their behalf. But, but now that Jesus has come, we have no need for priests in that sense. Jesus has become our sacrifice. We've just celebrated around the Lord's table how he, how he did that, how he died in our place as our sacrifice, the, the sacrifice that ended the need for any other sacrifice. He gave himself on the cross as the payment for all our sin, once and for all. But of course, as we've been uh, reminded this morning already, he did not remain in the grave. He was raised to everlasting life, and in his resurrection power, he has become our great high priest who ever lives at the right hand of God. He represents us in God's presence eternally. So we have no need for human priests because we have no need for sacrifices and because we have direct access to God the Father through God the Son, our Savior. So why on earth does Peter describe the church as a priesthood? It's not because we need a priest to give us a relationship with God because we have Jesus. It's not to create a relationship with God, but it is to help one another sustain a relationship with God and strengthen our relationship with God. Because as the Old Testament priests served God, so we serve God. And we bring to him sacrifices, not not of meat and blood, but of thankful hearts. We serve God with sacrifices of obedience and service. And as we do that, we are priests of the King of Kings. And just as the Old Testament priests represented God to the people and represented the people to God, those two essential tasks are ours as we live life in this community of God's people. We are to represent God to one another. 
And how do we do that? Well, I think it's as we do that one anothering we thought of a moment ago. It's as we serve one another and love one another and care for one another that we ourselves see glimpses of God. We see glimpses of what God is like as we see him in the lives and service of our brothers and sisters. As we do that one anothering. Now, in case you, if you think I'm a one-trick pony just banging on about this one-anothering, be grateful I'm not the pastor who, after a few weeks in his new church, got up one Sunday and said, my text this morning is love one another, and he introduced the last hymn and sat down. And then the next Sunday, he got up and said, my text this morning is love one another, he introduced the last song and sat down. The third Sunday, he did the same, and by this point, of course, the deacons were getting a bit concerned. Uh, So they sent the church secretary to visit him, uh, who said, Pastor, when are you going to preach something different? Uh, And he he answered, when people start acting on what I'm saying. And over the course of a a few months, he he saw the church begin to grow in love for one another. So one Sunday, he took everyone by surprise and began a new series. My text this morning is, love your neighbor. (laughs) So be thankful I'm not that pastor. Uh, But the point is important. These one another's are not optional extras for the church, as we live out that way of life with one another, we show one another what God himself is like. So the next time someone gives you a lift to the hospital, they're being a priest to you, because in them you can see God's care. The next time someone cooks you a meal, they're being a priest to you. In them, you can see God's provision for you. How about this? This one might be a bit harder. The next time someone speaks the truth in love to you or challenges you about a sinful word or or behavior pattern, they're being a priest to you. In them, you can hear God's word of love speaking to your heart. If we view one another in that kind of way, it radically changes our life together as a church. But you know, the priests not only represent God to the people, they represent the people to God. And of course, we do the same, don't we, as we pray for one another. What a joy and privilege it is to lift one another before the throne of grace. Those who are struggling and hurting, who are sick and grieving, those who are walking through dark valleys, those facing big decisions, we pray for them and we lift them before God. We are being priests. You are a priestly people. Third, God says through Peter to his church, you are a pure people, a holy nation, Peter says. And again, he draws on this Old Testament language describing what the people of Israel were supposed to be but weren't, and what the church of Jesus Christ is, a holy nation, a pure people. Now, that word holy means set apart, different, distinctive, pure. Holiness, ultimately, is a characteristic of God himself. God is set apart. He's different. We're created beings. He's uncreated. We're sinful. He's pure and spotless. God is not only holy, he's holy, holy, holy. That's not a reference to the Trinity, by the way. It's not about the quantity of persons in the Godhead. It's about the quality of holiness in the Godhead. God is white, hot, holy. 
And because God is holy, he cannot stand the sight of sin and evil. And that is why he acted decisively to deal with sin and evil. He sent his son, Jesus, who himself is dazzlingly pure and holy. Sent him to become sin for us. He did it in order that our sinfulness might be dealt with, that we might be able to stand in the presence of God, cleansed and pure and spotless. Grasp this. When you are weighed down by sin, when you are just so conscious of your sinfulness, which we all are from time to time, grasp that in the sight of God you have been made pure by the blood of Jesus. And now this pure and holy God, who has purified his people, calls his people to live up to that calling. Be pure and holy. Set apart for him and for his glory. We realize that in this fallen world, still corrupted by sin, we are still plagued by sin. But in the power of the Holy Spirit, though we will never be sinless until we reach heaven, we should at least sin less. And so in our individual lives, we ought to be growing in holiness as God's Spirit gets to work in us. But as a community of God's people, as the church, we are called together to be holy and pure, distinctively different to the world around us. Uh, Back in Essex, in the 1830s, almost 200 years ago, there was a denomination of churches founded that called themselves the Peculiar People. And you might think there are some peculiar people in every church, but... That's what they were called. They took that name because in the King James Version of the Bible, this phrase, holy nation, was translated as peculiar people. You can go on Bible Gateway and check. I'm right. That's what that word peculiar means. Different, special. Of course, over time, it's it's come to mean strange. Um, But it took them until the 1960s to change the name of the denomination. Um, But their desire was right. That the church should be known to be different. That it should be seen to be special. Why? Because the church is set apart by God for his glory. The church should be so distinctively different to the world around us that people can see the difference. They can see the purity of our lives in the way we live. The decisions we make, the way we act towards one another. God's new community is a pure people. What a, what a high calling. Fourth, God says, you are a precious people. God's special possession. He's chosen us. He's bought us at great price. What a joy it is to belong to him. And as God's special possession, we, the church, are highly valued. We are precious to him. We're not just one possession sitting on the shelf among many. We are his special possession. And what do you do with special, precious possessions? You take care of them. When we were preparing to move and packing up all our possessions into boxes, there were some that we took greater care with. I say we, Beth did all the packing. There were some that Beth took greater care with than others. Uh, some had sentimental value, others were very fragile. Incidentally, there were some possessions she didn't take care with at all that have completely disappeared from the face of the earth. Uh, but those that were very special, she took great care with. 
in order to protect them. The same is true for the church. God's special possession, valuable, precious to him. And therefore, he takes great care over us. We're held tight in his almighty hands. We're held secure by him. He will not let us go. He will not let the church go. You know, even in the face of fierce opposition, the church is a protected species. Peter's readers in the first century needed to know that. Perhaps we do too. We are precious to God. This church is precious to God. We were in London uh, the other week to see a a show, and although we love taking the children to London, it always comes with a degree of fear and worry. Uh, We make sure they're holding on to our hands very tightly, so they know they're safe, and we know they're safe. But the reality is that their small hands don't have the power to hold on to us if someone was to snatch them away. The reality is it's not them who are holding on to us, we are holding on to them. And the same is true with God. Although we, as a church, of course, we seek to be faithful to him, the reality is that our security is not based on our hanging on to God. It is on the fact that his almighty hand is holding on to us. And in the knowledge that we are his special possession, precious to him, held safely by him, we can press on with confidence. Fifth and finally, God says, you are a purposeful people. Those four little phrases that Peter has used to describe the church, they draw on that Old Testament words and phrases. They're not found in some kind of vacuum. They're not there so the church can become self-satisfied or complacent. All of these wonderful things that the church is, they have a reason that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkest night into his darkness, into his wonderful light. The church has a purpose. All of those other characteristics gel together so that we, God's new community, show the world what God is like. He's called us from the darkness of of, of wandering in this world without him into the glorious light that only he can provide. And all around us are people still fumbling around in the darkness. People who do not know Jesus. God has called us to be his people, and he's called us with a purpose, to show the world his glory, to show the world what he is like, to show the world how awesome God is and how beautiful his son is. And again, Peter kind of calls on an Old Testament idea. Do you remember when God made his covenant with Abraham way back in Genesis 12? Uh, And he said to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. And all peoples of the world will be blessed through you. Israel was greatly blessed and was intended to be a blessing to the world. The reality was they shut the door. Instead of welcoming people in, they shut them out. And the church is the fulfillment of all that God's people should have been. We are blessed in order to be a blessing. We who know God's grace should all be about holding out that grace to those in darkness. I want to tell you a a story as we close. It's kind of a modern-day parable. 
There was a dangerous stretch of coastline, notorious for shipwrecks. And and on that coast was a crude little lifeboat station. It was just a hut with a little boat inside it. But the, the few devoted members kept watch over the stormy sea. And with little thought for themselves, they would go out day and night and search for those in danger in the water. And many lives were saved as, uh, by this little band of brothers who worked faithfully as a team. Uh, and some of those who had been rescued, uh, as well as some of the other locals living nearby, well, they, they started to want to get involved. And they were willing to give time and money. And over time, new boats were bought and new crews were trained. Some of the members, well, they began to be unhappy that this little hut was so dilapidated. They wanted, passionately wanted to do something about it, so they worked hard to make it more comfortable. Eventually, the hut was torn down and a purpose-built building stood in proudly in its place. By this time, it had been a club, become a clubhouse as well. and It was a popular gathering spot for the locals, but its objectives had slowly began to shift. Saving lives in the sea was no longer the most important thing they did. Fewer members were interested in that kind of thing, braving the sea, so so they hired in professional crews to do the work. They hadn't forgotten the original purpose altogether. There were were old photographs on on the wall. The original boat was on display in one room, almost like a shrine, and One night there was a a, a big shipwreck out in the ocean and the lifeboat crews brought in dozens of wet, half-drowned sailors so they were dirty and sick. The majority of club members were utterly distraught that their new club had become dirty and messy. So a special committee organised the building of a shower block outside so any further sailors saved could be cleaned up before coming in. On the next committee meeting, there were angry words and bitter division. Most people wanted to stop the life-saving missions altogether, uh, relocate them elsewhere because it was simply opening up the door of the clubhouse to people who were dirty, people who weren't their kind of people. Some were insistent on maintaining the original purpose, but they were shouted down and told, if you want to do that kind of thing, go elsewhere up the coast. So they did. New lifeboat station started up the coast, and as the years passed by, the new lifeboat station experienced the same changes, and yet another had to be built. And history repeated itself, and along that coastline ended up a large number of very impressive buildings, owned and operated as members' clubs, run by people who had lost any involvement with saving lives, and shipwrecks still occurred off the coast. But now most perished at sea, and few seemed to care. It's that haunting line in the hymn, you know, facing a task unfinished. It's that haunting line. Many souls are dying and pass into the night. And you know, that parable sounds tragically like way too many churches that have forgotten that we are a purposeful people. God is building a new community, and what a glorious community the church is. Look around you. You are glorious a privileged people, a priestly people, a pure people, a precious people, a purposeful people. Is that the kind of church we are? Is that the kind of church we want to be? May God bless us and build us this year 
and way beyond. As we close, we're going to sing uh, a hymn. Uh, I understand that you don't actually know the words, but you